All right, beloved, let's then turn into the scriptures. Today we are in Luke chapter 22. It is my great hope to, to uh, finish the chapter. I spoke at a turn. No, I'm not finishing the chapter. I only did it from 54. <laughs> I would like to finish the chapter, get it done, but no, not today. Okay. Let me read it for you. Okay, we're going to be starting from verse 24. Okay, and then I'll read down to verse uh, 46. Beginning at verse 24. Also a dispute arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentile lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer to you a kingdom just as my father conferred one to me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on my and sit on a throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel Simon Simon Satan has asked to sift you as wheat but i have prayed for you Simon that your faith may not fail and when you have turned back strengthen your brothers but he that is Simon Peter replied lord i am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Then Jesus, answer, or then Jesus answered him, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you know me three times. Then Jesus asked them, that is the disciples, when I sent you without a purse, bag or sandals, did you like anything? Nothing, they answered. And he said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and a bag also. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, See, Lord, here we have two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not fall into into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw away from them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
When he arose from prayer, he went back to the disciples and found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked. Get up and pray that you do not fall into temptation. Amen. So we're finishing up the, uh, the occasion of what's commonly known as the Lord's Supper or the, the, uh, the first celebration of the last, the, the Lord's Supper, the last supper that Jesus took. It's his, the last evening before the crucifixion. Crucifixion will be the next morning. Jesus will be arrested in the middle of the night. And his mock trial will go on. And this is the last occasion that he has with his disciples. And he has been pouring out wisdom and praying for them and and demonstrating to them. We know from the Gospel of John, he washes their feet. As a, a, a... A sign and a symbol, a demonstration of the work that he's about to do and of the expectation of their conduct with one another. We see even at this this holy moment, this, this intimate time that Jesus has with his disciples, we still see that they're very immature. We still see that there are problems amongst them. They're not unified. But there's still ambitions and animosities among them. There's still bickering. That's an Irish word. It means the kinna. It means to argue with one another, to kind of small snipe. You know, you, you have issues inside, but you can't really let them out. So you just make little comments, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, in Ireland we would say, a joke with a jag. I'm only joking. <clears throat> And right away, you know, that we see, we're told here in the Holy Scriptures that there's a dispute, an argument as to who's the best, who's the most important. And uh, just from the context, we can kind of see that Peter was somehow in some way involved in this discussion because Jesus picks him out. They were arguing as to who was to serve and who was not to serve. Who was to give the orders and who was to follow. I can just imagine Peter who's lying beside Jesus on the other side. John on the other side. Like, reclining at the table. And, and Peter saying, "You can, someone down the bottom of the table, can you get the wine please? Uh, can you just tidy up that mess? You know? Can you tell them? And there's a bit of a, mm, <laughs> who made you the boss? Where did you become the big guy? Well, I've been on the mountain. I saw the glory come down. You know what? <sighs> Jesus and me were like this. He calls me Rocky. That's a great nickname. Imagine Jesus giving you a nickname. Be great to Rocky. Poor, you know, Saul who became Paul. Saul means great. Saul means like, like magnificent. Do you know what Paul means? Small pebble. Unimportant. Like gravel. You know, like Peter, uh, Peter was called Peter. Simon was called Peter and it means the rock. Clip, you know, strong. When we think of the name Rocky, rock, you know, big strong guy. 
You want a nickname from Jesus? You want a nickname like Peter, Rocky, Petrus, big guy. Poor Paul got, or Simon, or Saul who became Paul got the opposite. He who was magnificent became he who is. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't his nickname, but it was his, his ordinary name. So yes, they're discussing among themselves who's the most important. Jesus then gives them a lesson in the, the leadership of his kingdom. That those who would be great amongst his people must not be like the people of this world. That the uh, authority administration of his kingdom is not to be based on the model of this world. And he uses these these upside down illustrations. The greatest, as in the the most important among you, must be like the, the youngest. Now we know in their culture that the firstborn got everything. And the, the, the children after, they may have got something, but not normally. And the further you were down the line, like my Levi, you get nothing. You know, you, you, were, you had to go out and make your own way in this world. You were considered uh, totally unimportant. Just, just unnecessary, like an appendix, you know. And Jesus says... In, in his teaching, his rebuke, and his talking to his disciples, that if you want to be considered important in his kingdom, you must consider yourself as the youngest, as the least important. Not pulling yourself forward, not with an expectation of reward or inheritance, but as one who's basically a servant within the house. He then flips it again and talks about serving. Who's more important? And we all understand this. The customer's always right. We've been brought up to believe that, haven't we? We go to a restaurant and they they bring you soup and it has three or four flies in it. You say, send us back. (laughs) They bring you your steak and it's either, if you like, well done steak. it's, It's underdone or if you like underdone steak it's overdone and you send it back and you get a new one and the waiter can't stand there and say to you no you're wrong why because it just doesn't work that way and Jesus is pointing out in his kingdom those who are in leadership should be the servants not the ones making the dictating but the ones who are serving And then Jesus points to himself and says, look, listen, I'm among you as one who serves. And we know from the other Gospels, it's at that point he takes off his robe and ties a towel around himself and washes the feet of of his disciples as an indication, as a demonstration of the spirit of leadership within his, his kingdom. He goes on then to... To reassure them that because they have been with him, because they have gone through the trials, the tribulations with him, that there will be a reward. And I I talked about how important it is to understand that in Christianity, it's not communism. It's not one reward fits all. It's not like we all get to heaven and we all get the same stuff. 
But for those who have served, for those who have been faithful, for those who have poured out their life even unto death, there are greater rewards. God remembers and rewards his people. And for these disciples, there was to be a reward for them that they were to rule over and judge the the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus then singles out Simon and demonstrates to Simon, tells Simon what's about to happen to him. And again, I see this very clearly as a, a curbing, a controlling, a putting him in his place. Putting that arrogance and that pride. I am who I am. I know that I'm everybody else will fall but me. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm perfect. I, I'm robust and strong. I'll make it. Everybody else, like, you know, don't know about them, but for me. And Jesus speaks specifically and demonstrates and revealing his foreknowledge of what's about to happen. And also knowing what's happening in the spirit realms. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. The, in the ancient world, whenever they were preparing the harvest and sifting, they would, they would take the, the wheat in large baskets. They look like plates, like net plates. And they would throw it up in the air. And all the chaff, all the rubbish parts would be caught by the wind. And they would blow away and all would fall down would be the, 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 the parts of the wheat that you wanted. The curdles, whatever they're called. And it was an, uh, the idea of, of that you would look through everything. There would be nothing left. It, it was the, a demonstration of a terrible trial. And Peter is put in his place. But then Jesus says to him, when you are restored, uh, fantastic. Peter is restored because Jesus prays for him. And again, we looked at the fact, thank God, that Christ is in heaven interceding for us. None of us by ourselves have the ability to make it in this life. None of us are wise enough, cunning enough, sensible enough, strong enough to resist the forces of darkness in this world. We can't even resist our own temptations. We don't have the insight. We don't have the intelligence. We don't have the ability or the authority to resist. But Jesus does. And his efforts on the behalf of Simon secured his restoration. And you and I, beloved... Despite all of our fallings and our failings, despite all of our inconsistencies in our walk, no matter how strong we might think we are, we will fumble and we will fall and we will make mistakes. We're just human. But the glory and the good news is that Jesus Christ is there to pick us up. That he will not let us falter or fall. I told you this before. There's a Bible verse that I used to sing to myself when I was young. and Because uh, it's part of a song that I used to sing when I was part of a choir. I know it's hard to believe. Uh, I Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall arise. 
That used to be sort of my life first, you know. I'd be like, oh, Lord, oh, here I am again. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. For when I fall, I shall arise, for the Lord is on my side. What good news it is for us to know that we are not left orphans. That we have not been abandoned. That Jesus has not left and forgot about us. But he's active and involved. And then we get to today. Verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And then he said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it. The bag also. And if you have a sword, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For it is written, yet he was numbered with the transgressors. I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. At this point, now, Jesus turns his attention from Simon Peter and he addresses his disciples one last time in this context of the, the Last Supper. And he reminds them of the last time that they were without him. The last time he sent them out. And we remember from the Gospels, remember that he sent them out on missionary journeys, sent them out before him, and he sent them out into the villages, into the countryside, into the small towns, two by two, you know. And uh, there they were sent without any kind of um, pr- provisions. He didn't take a backpack or anything. He just sent them out. And God provided for them along the way. He opened up the villages, the homes. People, people invited them in. There was a... a, a a welcoming uh, response from the people. And he reminds them of that time. He reminds them of, of, of that, that, that instant, that, those missionary journeys. And he asks them, of course, we saw, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. No, we were fully. And then in verse 36. He says to them, but now, but now, there is a change. Something is different. This time, there's going, he's going to send them out. They're going to be without him. And in this circumstance, it's going to be different. He's indicating a change. What we're really seeing here is the beginning of the church age. He is predicting that there's not going to be a welcoming. There's not going to be an excitement or a, a, a looking for them. People are not going to open their doors. People are not going to be flocking and flooding after them. There's going to be a difference. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be an aggression against them. There's going to be a change in how people perceive them. But now if you have a buy of a purse, take it. 
and a bag also. If you have, don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. There is this expectation of them providing for themselves, for them being prepared, for them understanding that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like a triumphant parade where they just walk in and was like, Whoa, you're so wrong. Tell us. But there's going to be resistance. There's hardship. He's predicting persecution. The purse, of course, was a money purse. The bag, of course, was a knapsack, meaning that you were uh, going to be homeless or itinerant. You were going to go on a journey. You weren't going to... to uh, have everything that you need, so you need to take it with you. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. I thought that was really weird. I thought, why would Jesus be telling them about a sword? Not that I'm against swords. You all know I like my swords. And I look up the word, and it's, what was it in, in Greek? Uh, makara. That sounds like sausage, doesn't it? No. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And it's a Greek sword. And when we use the word sword, that's a bit misleading. It was a really big knife. Have you ever seen a Bowie knife from America? One of those really long, 12-inch long blades, big Bowie knife. Well, this sword that Jesus is talking about here, or or, or a a Nepalese curry, isn't that what they call them? The, the, The big sloping blade. So about this size with a handle connected to it. And it was basically a utility knife. You took it with you. It was, if you're going on a journey, you take a knife with you. Why? Because if you're in the forest, you take a knife with you. And it was multifunctional, not just for attacking people or defending yourself, but it was used in basically just in everything. One of the, the commentaries that I read said that Think of a large kitchen knife. Think of a large kitchen knife. That if you were going on a a journey, if you were out camping, if you were, which they did, or you were going somewhere that caused or needed to have like trees cut down or, you know, stuff and stuff, skinning animals or whatever, you would take a large utility knife. Here in Scandinavia, the Viking sacks has always been the utility knife. It's a, it's a large blade. In Finland, it's what's called a poko. That's that, that utility knife. We all know what I mean. But here, again, this is a, a large blade. And it's not necessarily used for warfare. It's a utility knife. It's whatever you need it to be. That's what it is. Now, of course, there were swords like that that were used in warfare. But in this instant, he's talking about a blade that you would use as you were going on a journey. The idea there is be prepared to have to move. Be prepared to have to care for yourself. Don't expect there to be a welcome for you. Don't expect a a warm reception. There's going to be like a war made against you. you're not going to have it easy. And he's contrasting the time when they went out on their missionary journeys and it was just brilliant. Remember they came back from those missionary journeys and they were boasting, Lord, even the demons are in submission to us. 
It's fantastic. And they were seeing healings and deliverances and mass revivals. Jesus is saying to them, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be difficult. The responsibility now lies upon you to be prepared. And then he says in verse 37, it is written that he was numbered with the transgressors. He's talking about himself here. He's not talking about the crucifixion. He's not even talking about his death. So much that he's quoting from from, uh, Isaiah 53. He's talking about his, his being positionally together with him. He stands in union with. He is numbered amongst. He's one of or counted as one of them. It's a pointing to his substitutionary death. He represents them. He's there on their behalf. He's giving himself. He who knew no sin. He who never did anything wrong. Now stands together. Or for. Those who are transgressors of the law those who have broken the law and again please don't think when I use the word law Finnish law or European law or any law of this world when we talk about the law we are pointing to the law of God that great and perfect law that law that examines the heart of a man sees through the outward and examines the inward. Knows your thoughts, your feelings, your desires. Knows the things that you've said and felt. And examines them in the light of that holy law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. We remember that, don't we? Jesus then said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing these things you have completed all the law. How far short have we fallen from that? When we talk about the law, Jesus illustrates it, doesn't he? When he he says that you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, even if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. Simply to look, simply to To fantasize is counted as a breaking of the law of God. You have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say unto you, even if you're angry in your heart against someone, you've committed murder. Why? Because you've acted unlovingly. You've broken the law of God and fallen so far short. And it was this reason. Because all of us in our cells have broken God's law. And all of us stand guilty before him. And one day the Bible tells us that we will all stand. The great and the small. Every man, woman and child will be gathered before God's great throne. And the Bible says the books, the record of your life will be opened. And you will be examined in the light of that evidence 
before all of humanity, from Adam until the last man. And all of humanity will see the evidence presented about you, the record of your life, every thought, every feeling, every act, every denial will be laid bare before all mankind. And you will be weighed. You will be examined and tested against that perfect law of God. Against Jesus himself. Because Jesus is the law of God. He embodies it. He is the perfect representation of God. And if your life is less than his. If you have broken the law even in the slightest You are guilty of breaking that law. Of not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Of rejecting him who gave his life that you might live. All of us will one day die. The Bible tells us that all of us will one day face God in judgment. It is not a joke. It is not a toy. It is not something to play with or be in denial of. All of us must take responsibility for our own sins. But the good news is that we have one who has been numbered with the transgressors. There is one who stands in our place. There is one who represents us in the court of God's law. His name is Jesus. And he has delivered unto all those who will believe in him a pardon. Innocence. Not our innocence, but his innocence transferred onto us. He is willing to take your guilt. He is willing to accept your punishment in order that you might be free. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're worthy of it. But because he is loving and kind and merciful. We must remember that he was numbered with the transgressors. That he became our substitute. The one who stands for us. And he says here, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus knew that the end was coming. He knew what was about to happen. And still went on. He continued if you knew that you were about to endure a a terrible horrible persecution and death if you knew that and if within a few hours hundreds of soldiers would turn up that you would be taken mocked beaten tortured unduly tried and corruptly convicted Ending in your execution. And that execution wasn't just getting your head chopped off or being shot and died suddenly. The execution of Jesus Christ was one of torture. The cross was the worst form of execution ever invented by man. It was a horrible way to die. And Jesus knew in perfect clarity that he would have to go through, more so than you and I. 
He knew in every meticulous detail of what was about to happen. And he did not flee from it. He did not flinch from it. He knew what it would take to set you free. And that's just the physical. He also took upon himself the wrath of God. The full anger and fury of hell was unleashed upon him upon that cross. His Father, God the Father, whom he had enjoyed perfect unity with since eternity past, for forever, in the moment of the cross, the Bible tells us that even God turned away. So much so that Jesus cried out, Oh my God, my God, where are you? Let us remember what Christ did for us. Not just that he died, but that he endured it. He knew with perfect clarity what was about to happen. And what was the disciples' response? What was the disciples' response to this warning, this instruction, this encouragement? See, Lord, we have two swords! knives they didn't get it all they heard was trouble difficulty blah 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 sword blah 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 in their immaturity in their blindness in their eagerness for success all they were concerned with was tearing down the Romans, raising up the kingdom, ruling, getting a reward, yada, 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 whatever else. Yes, Jesus and swords. There was still this tremendous immaturity and blindness upon them. They were so eager for success that they were willing to go to war for it. They were willing to murder people. To get what they wanted. You know, Jesus' response here at the end of verse 38. I always read this and thought, Jesus saying, well, two swords is enough. Well done. Good boys. But then I I read it in in the context, went through the the, the commentators this week. and, And they all unanimously said, Jesus is saying here, that's enough. Stop talking like that. Director. It's enough. Just <clears throat> stop talking nonsense. I don't want to say chefta, but you understand what I mean. Be silent. Stop talking like that. And he ends it. The disciples were trying to make the kingdom by earthly means. Or they were willing to resort to earthly means in order to build the kingdom. In order to establish Christ's throne. And they didn't get it. They couldn't get it. They wouldn't get it. And Jesus just stops them. That's enough. That's enough. He's not willing. He was not willing and is not willing to use earthly methods to get what he wants. And how do we know this? Because later on when he's in the garden and the cohort, the crowds come, the, 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 the battalion of soldiers come to arrest him. Well, doesn't Peter whip out this one of those big knives and attacks the servant of the chief priest and chops off his ear? Floop! 
Jesus says, hey, stop it. He goes over and picks up the ear, blows off the dust, gives it a bit of spit, sticks it back on the guy's head, heals him. That's enough. We don't do that. Our kingdom is not of this world. We do not use earthly weapons to get what we want. That's enough. Do not be like the world or anything that is in the world. Do not be friends with the world. We must always remember that we serve the greatest, the Almighty, who, as it says later on, if he had desired, he could have called 13 battalions of angels to come and rescue him, but he did not. He does not need the help of man. He does not need men's weapons or effort on his behalf. He has called us to partake, to be co-laborers together with him. He has tasked us with a great task to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Teaching those who believe to be his disciples. How to be his disciples. To obey all the things that he has commanded them. But not by tanks and guns. Not by big knives. Not by the the methods and means of this world. By heavenly means and heavenly methods. Knowing that, that he who sent us will build his church and not even the gates of hell shall be able to prevail against it. We should be encouraged by this, knowing that even the disciples who had spent three and a half years with Jesus were still immature in their faith. They still fumbled and failed and and fell down. We should be encouraged by this because we know that in this age we will have trouble. We know that it won't be easy and it won't be handed to us in a golden plate. There is the idea here that we must work, that we must survive, that we must continue. We must endure the difficulties that are set before us. We do so because he, that is Jesus, he identified with us. He is our representative. He is the one who took upon himself All of the wrath and anger and punishment that God had for you, Jesus took upon himself in order that you might never endure or experience the anger and the wrath and the displeasure of God. And these things weren't done by accident. They were pre-planned from eternity past. Don't want to talk about the covenant of redemption. Be encouraged. Be encouraged because Jesus is talking to you frail and fallible. People who make mistakes. And as they did, so we do. But we know that we have one who prays for us. One who is on our side. One who has acted in order that we might have friendship. and Be reconciled together with God. Let's not make the mistake that these disciples made. That they sought to establish the kingdom of God by human methods and means. By force. By the force of their arm. 
Their expectation of what God was going to do was wrong. Let us, we have been given the full revelation of God. We know better than they do. We have more information at our fingertips than they had. We have the the blessing of hindsight of being able to look back and understand with clarity. Let us not be those whom Jesus says, look, just be quiet. Let us pray together with him, Lord, not our will be done, but your will be done. Let us rejoice. Let's look to him. Let us partake. And if you haven't believed, if you don't believe in him today, if you're still in your sins, if the judgment of God is still upon you today because you have not repented of your sins, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, crying out, God, forgive me for my sins. I know, Lord, that I have done wrong against you. I know that one day, Lord, when I die or you return, I must stand before you in judgment. And if my life was to be exposed, everyone would see that I'm undeserving. Lord, you give Jesus to die for me. You provided a way out for me. You provided life for me and pardon. Please, Lord, please, Lord, save me. And the Bible says, Jesus says, I will in no way cast out anyone who comes to me. And everyone who comes to him will be saved. If you do not know the Lord, do not pass it by. Do not say, well, where is God? Tomorrow will be the same as today, as today was the same as yesterday. The Bible says that there will come a day which will be known as the last day. There will be none after. It will be the last day. And on that day, judgment will come. Let us rejoice in the gift of life that he has given us. Let us choose life and trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father. We are so aware of your greatness. Lord, we are so aware of the sacrifice of Christ and of our unworthiness of that sacrifice. We acknowledge, Lord, that we, like the disciples, are are full of mistakes, full of immaturities, full of human ambitions and desires. And how often, Lord, we fall out of step with your will. How we try and force what we perceive to be your will through our methods and our means. By the strength of our own arm. We ask, Father, that you would forgive us. We ask, Lord, that that you would help us to repent of those things. That, Lord, you would make us aware of our mistakes. That we wouldn't just continue in the... uh, the wheel of, of continued mistakes, doing the same thing again and again and again. Lord, help us, we who believe, to fall into step with, with your plans and your purposes for your kingdom, that we might, Lord,
serve you all the more. Heavenly Father, we pray for those who do not know you. We pray, Lord, that you would open up their eyes, that you'd open up their hearts, Lord, that you'd allow them to see their guilt and their need of a Savior. Oh, Father, we trust that you'll do all things according to your will. In Jesus' precious name, amen.